That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. You know, if we were to go around the room this morning... And, and we were to make, we might have to do it in, in smaller groups, uh, perhaps, but if we were to have a time of really honest conversation, and we were to talk about our Christian walk and our spiritual journeys, and we were to talk about those things where we, uh, maybe our areas of success, um, you know, we would see some common ground. I guarantee you if we started talking about areas of challenge, uh, areas where we uh, have failures and uh, just, just this can't seem to get past things or, or are just stuck in our Christian walk, we would very quickly begin to see some, some trends, I think, um, as we talked among each other. For, for example, there would probably be a group of us that would, yeah, 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 that's me. I, I, I struggle with just having a consistent quality time with the Lord every day in personal worship. You know, I'll, I'll be fine for a few days and, and maybe for a couple of weeks, and then I'll go a week or two weeks, and it's just up and down, up and down with my quiet time. And then, then there'll be a, maybe a group of us that would say, I don't have any problems with that at all. I mean, it, it's been, you know, 20 years, and I've never missed a day, and the rest of us are going to throw a stone at you or something, you know, and, and because that's not, you know. But, but then there's going to be other groups of people, we'll, we'll see a trend where there's there's folks in our church where the reality of their spiritual life is that they struggle with uh, an addiction of some kind. And whether it's a substance or it's, uh, it's pornography or it's uh, an indulgence of the flesh, it's some coping mechanism that is it's, it's sin and, and we're relying upon that instead of our Savior for comfort, for peace, for satisfaction. It's an, it's an idol in our life that uh, we battle, and, uh, and, but then there's others who, that's just, it's not you. You don't have that. Uh, then, there's, then there's some of you who maybe you don't have any type of addiction in your crime, but you live in fear. You're, you're anxious all the time. And then there's some of us that are just going, hey, whatever, dude, every life is fine, you know? There's, what's there to be afraid of, you know? You know, we would see that very quickly 
in our, in, in, as we began to talk. We would see some definite trends where there's groups here and there's groups there and there's groups there. But I guarantee you that if we really had this conversation and we were honest with each other, there would be one overwhelming trend, I believe, that would cover virtually all of us. Maybe 1%, 2% of us would be exempt, but I think it probably, even the one or two percenters, if we were honest, we would fall in this category sooner or later. And that is this one area that we find it difficult to be bold and sharing our faith with other people who do not know Jesus Christ. That area right there, there I, I, don't, I just don't meet Christians who don't find it difficult at some point in their life. And, and it doesn't matter how successful you've been in the past. You may have done, I've done it all my life. I started when I was a teenager, and yet even to this day, I will be, it'll be teed up, and it'll be almost like somebody will look at me and say, Jerry, what must I do to be saved? And at that moment, you can get, you know, your heart starts racing. Well, that hurt my throat. I better drink some water there. <laughs> your heart will start racing. You, 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 your, your mind will go blank sometimes. You'll, you'll get afraid. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't answer the question right? You're, you're, you know, you'll start sweating, you know. And I, I mean, it, it brings stress. This area right here of sharing our faith, it's hard. It's really hard. You know, our theme all year has been uh, kingdom renewal, the, the, the kingdom of God growing in us and through us. And uh, the Lord's Prayer, the decision of the Lord's Prayer, that's a lot about the kingdom of God growing in us. But last week, Ben brought us that, that great message from that passage about being fishers of men. And, and that's the through us part. And we need messages that continually bring before us this idea that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, that God grows his kingdom through us. And the reason why we need it is because so many of us, we struggle in this area in different ways. Um, doesn't matter how involved we are in ministry, even the ministries of our church that tee up evangelism, this area, it just, we struggle. Uh, we struggle as individuals. We, we're, we're struggling with it as a church. Well, we, we aren't seeing the conversion growth and the evangelistic growth, people coming to Christ in our church that I, I believe God would have us see. We're struggling in this area. And, and, and it's, it's a common problem for Christians, okay? And, and so for every one of us who's ever wanted to open our mouth, you know, at work or something else, and, and to give a very clear testimony for Jesus Christ, to, to, to insert into a conversation the truth of the gospel or the truth of God's word, and at the last minute, we didn't go there because of fear or anxiety. For every one of us who later on in the day said, oh, I should have said. You ever done that? Have you ever said, I should have said. For every one of us who's ever had that moment, this parable is for you, okay? For every one of us in here this morning who have poured our life into someone and we've given them the gospel and, and we've loved them in, in deed 
and in our life and in our actions, and we've also loved them in word by giving them the truth of God's word. Maybe it's a, a child who's grown up and we've, we've poured our life into them as a youngster and now as an adult, and they have swatted the word of God back into our face and they rejected it. Or it's a family member who we have tried our best for year after year after year, and it seems like we're making progress and hope wells up in our heart and then smack. They slap it back in our face. Or for the coworker that you invite to come to church and they just look at you and say, don't waste my time with that. For everybody here who's had that kind of experience, I want you to know this parable is for you. That word parable, it's a loaded word because in our language, in the Western world, in Western civilization, it kind of has the idea of a fable like Aesop's fable, like a myth, okay? But that's, that's not what a parable is. It, it's the Greek word parabole. It's a, it's a very significant word that's actually a translation of an important Hebrew word, mashal. Um, and, and basically, it, it could be a riddle, it could be a proverb. In, in the Middle Eastern world, in biblical times, it, a lot of times a parable was a proverb. So when you read the book of Proverbs, you're reading parables in one sense, okay? Uh, it could be a taunting song like David's words to Goliath. That could be a parable. But oftentimes it was a story. And, and specifically, if you want a definition of it, it's a particular type of story. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's a real-life story. It's a story that takes events that you would normally see in life, things that are common in the human experience from which spiritual or moral truth is taught. Uh, the, the definition that I learned when I was a child in Sunday school, I probably wasn't even in first grade yet, but it still has legitimacy. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, okay? These are parables, and Jesus was a master parable teller, a storyteller. And, and what we know from a historical perspective, and, and the reason why we know what a parable is, is because the Jewish rabbis after Jesus used them. This was a tool in their, their, their tool belt, so to speak, in teaching their students. It wasn't a common tool, though. It wasn't something that was very often used. You don't find it before Jesus in the Hebrew writings, uh, but apparently it was known, and, and you find it in other rabbis after Jesus, but it was not a commonly used tool, yet Jesus uses it. And, and the fact that it wasn't common is kind of seen in verse 10 when the disciples come to him and say, why do you speak to them in parables? This isn't what most of the time what rabbis do. I mean, we've, we've just come out of the, the Sermon on the Mount. That's a very clear, didactic form of teaching. It was very winsome. It was very short and pithy. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, those who yearn and seek after righteousness, right? It's, it's very to the point. Why do you now speak to them in parables? And Jesus' answer is a real head-scratcher. He says to them, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, 
even what he has will be taken away. It almost sounds like Jesus is answering their question about a parable with a riddle, doesn't it? The one who has will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Does that clear it up for you? <laughs> no, exactly. Right. You see, we can understand what a parable is from the historical context, but folks, let me just take a moment, and, and, and this is good for us, especially as we try to become students of God's Word. When you come across a passage that makes you scratch your head, the thing to do is to back out and try to understand that passage within the context of the entire text. See, we not only need to understand the historical context, we also need to understand the textual context of any passage. If you just pluck some verses out, oftentimes you scratch your head. But when you put them into context of the entire book, it shines light. So let's back out for a second, right? In chapters 5 to 7, when Jesus begins his ministry on the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about kingdom living. He's preaching in very clear terms. He's explaining the ethics of what it looks like to live as a citizen in the kingdom of God. And so we have the whole Sermon on the Mount, the, that how your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, uh, the Lord's Prayer, and, and he's teaching as one who has authority right? And you come out of the kingdom living of chapters 5 to 7, and in chapters 6 to 8, it's all about, or excuse me, uh, chapters uh, 8 to 10, it's all about kingdom power. And you see in those chapters, Jesus doing miracle after miracle after miracle. He, he heals people with leprosy. He blind people get their sight. People who can't speak now can speak, can't hear, can hear. People who have withered hands, their hands. People who are, uh, you know, who are dead are raised back to life. All kinds of people who have possession and oppression by demons are freed from those demons. The people are astounded. This is that period of time where Jesus is feeding people and just doing a crazy types of miracles, demonstrating his power. And then he sends the apostles out to do ministry, and they too have power, and they're amazed. So you go from kingdom living to kingdom power, and then beginning in chapter 11, when Jesus has all these huge crowds now following him around, in chapters 11 and 12, you have kingdom opposition. And the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they begin to press in on Jesus and to oppose him. And in the chapter right before this, the verses right before this, in fact, opposition brackets all of these parables. You actually have the Pharisees saying, the reason why you're able to cast out demons is you're doing it through the power of Beelzebul. They're committing the unpardonable sin, Jesus says. Even his own family members come to him and say, listen, you're off your rocker. It's time for us to take you home. And at the end of this passage, chapter 13, he goes back to his hometown and to his synagogue, and he begins to teach and to proclaim God's word, and his own uh, village people reject him, and so he leaves. He says, a prophet has no honor in his own country, and he'll do no miracles in his own hometown. And so you have this opposition that has arisen around Jesus. You have all these groupies who want more food. They want things from Jesus. They're not believing him. They want something from him to make their life better. And so he begins to teach parables. 
That's why. Do you, do you see? See, there's a twofold. Now come to these verses. When you come to these verses, his explanation makes sense. He says, why, why do you speak in parables? He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In other words, apostles, disciples, you have believed in me because of God's sovereign divine power before the foundations of the world, you have been given to me and you have believed you're my disciples. And because you believe, you're understanding my message. And now I am teaching you. And because you've been given to me, you will now understand even more. For the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have it in abundance. You're mine. And as I teach you, so, so the parables had a purpose in the life of the disciples. Jesus was using it to teach them the deeper truths of the kingdom of God. And that's what parables do. They force us to think, don't they? They force us to stop and go, hmm, let me meditate on that. What does he mean by that? Even today, when we read the parables, we have to stop and, hmm, think and chew on it for a while. And according to Jesus, the ability to understand the parables is because of divine, sovereign, electing grace. But the parables have a second purpose. They confuse and they condemn the opponents of Jesus. Those who are not what they have will be taken away. Even the understanding they have, the parables condemn them. They actually serve as a form of judgment upon them because they rejected Jesus and the message that he was giving them, the gospel of the kingdom, when it was clear. And they rejected what was so obvious in front of them. Because of this, the parables are a form of judgment and condemnation upon them. You didn't like what I gave you when it was clear? Well, then let me give you spiritual truth that isn't as clear. And so the parables for the disciple is a wonderful teaching tool that unfolds the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But for the one who is simply trying to use Jesus or for the opponents of Jesus, the parables actually end up becoming a form of judgment upon them. So this parable here, it's a big one. Why does he start with this one here about the seeds and the soils? This parable's unique because in this parable, Jesus actually does something that he doesn't do in other parables. He gives us not only the details of the parable, he also explains it. He doesn't normally do that. He doesn't normally tell us what the parable means. You have to kind of figure that out on your own and trust the Holy Spirit. But not in this case. In verse 3, he says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details. I want to kind of summarize the first eight, no, nine verses and the verses 18 to 23 and put them together. He says there's four types of soil that the sower encounters. <clears throat> and the soil is what? It's the heart of a man. The different kinds of heart that, that a, a person has. And, and that heart is what causes the response to the seed. The seed is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ and all that is contained within the gospel and the word of God. 
And in the very first one he gives us is the hard trampled soil in verse 4. In, in, in the ancient days, you had a big field, and it was, uh, you know, they were planting wheat or whatever, but if a person needed to go from point A to point B, they wouldn't walk around a person's field. They would walk across it. And over time, that shortcut, as people would go back and forth, would get trampled down, and it would become a footpath. Um, and so when the sower would go out and he would throw out his seed, that seed that would land on that footpath, it couldn't germinate. And in the morning, the birds would come, snatch up that seed. And so Jesus says, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. This is important to see because it tells us something about the kingdom and the now and the not yet of the kingdom and the tension that the kingdom has been inaugurated by Jesus, but it has not yet been fulfilled. We understand that Satan is active. He's been bound. He's been restrained, the Bible teaches us in Revelation chapter 20, but that does not mean he is powerless and he is actively seeking to rob the gospel from the hearts of men. And people's hearts become hard to the gospel. What makes a person's heart harder to the gospel? Have you ever had someone that you talk to about the gospel, you give them the gospel, and at first they seem receptive, but over time, the more you talk to them, the more antagonistic even they may become towards the gospel. They may even end a relationship, a friendship with you, because you're a Christian and they are not a Christian. What makes that happen? Well, the the answer in part we find, and I'm not going to read it this morning, but I would encourage you to take your Bible and go to Romans chapter 1 at some point, not during my sermon, please, and, and begin in verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. Because Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, teaches us something very important, that when people reject the truth that God gives them, even with the the, the obvious truth that is within nature itself, that has been implanted in the heart of every man, the law of God, the knowledge of God, the understanding of what is right and what is wrong, the basic fundamental concepts that God has put in us because we are created in the image of God. When a human being begins to reject that idea, When a human being begins to reject the Creator and worship something other than the Creator, like himself, or some other deity, or some other object, and he invests that object with his worship, the Bible says something begins to happen in that person's life. God turns that person over. They become harder. And we always focus on the moral aspects. Uh, it tends to, immorality tends to grow, and maybe in that person, certainly within the nation itself, the morals of the nation begin to go deeper and deeper in decline. But the Bible starts in Romans chapter 1 and verses 19, 20, and 21, and it says, the mind of the people themselves, they, they can't think right any longer. In other words, they become hardened, they become, they become opaque and obtuse. If you ever wonder what's going on in our country, why is it that things that are just so seemingly obvious, I mean, what do you mean you can't tell a person's gender by their sex organs anymore? I mean, that's kind of obvious. 
Well, not in our culture anymore. Why do things, why have things turned so upside down in our country in such a short period of time? Folks, we're under the judgment and chastising hand of God. And as a country rejects God and begins to worship other things, the mind of the people in the country becomes dark. Logic goes out the window. Common sense goes out the window. This is part of the judgment of God upon a person in a country. This is the, how the heart becomes harder and harder. And so a person can sit there and look you straight in the face and say, it is wrong to ever put a person to death who has murdered another person on death row. It is perfectly acceptable to murder a baby in the womb of a mother. And those things are so obviously illogical and opposites. But the mind is darkened and you can't even see the contradiction in the words that are coming out of the mouth. The darkened, hard, trampled soil. The shallow soil in verse 5. In the Middle, Middle Eastern world, rocks are everywhere. And so sometimes you get huge boulders, and over time, a, a few inches of dirt would come over that rock. And when the seed hits it, the plant will grow for a little bit. But as the sun begins to beat down on the wind, that plant will die because the roots can't go deep enough. And Jesus says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Somebody who has an emotional response to the gospel Yet he has no root in himself, and he endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises, he falls away. In other words, somebody is coming to Jesus because they want something. They want a better life. They want deliverance out of a problem. They see in Jesus the remedy, the solution to whatever they're facing, and he looks like, you know, maybe this will work. That religion didn't work. This motivational speaker didn't work. This job change didn't work. This new wife or this new husband didn't work. This change in my location. Jesus, let's try Jesus. And you hear the good news of Jesus. You hear the promise of what Jesus can do in your life. You go, I need that in my life. But what you want is the results that Jesus brings. You don't want Jesus himself. And that individual, when they want the results of Jesus, but not Jesus himself, and they make an allegiance by mouth to the gospel, it's not real. It's simply a manipulation, and they fall away. Then there's the thorny soil. Verse 7, seeds planted, that it may grow up, plant grows up. We've seen it here in town. You'll see a tree that's covered with vines and thorns, right? And, and that will choke out that tree. And, and Jesus says, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful, uh, and, it, and it proves unfaithful to them. This represents the person who seems to believe the gospel. And they may, it may be that way for, for many, 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 many years, long period of time, but ultimately, over time, it's proven that their loyalties are divided. I think of all the soils, in all the churches that I've ever pastored, this is the soil that's most common. It's the most common of the soils, and it's the most insidious of the false soils in the local churches of our setting. 
because the, the example given here is the cares of the world and the riches of the world. And, and how many times have I seen people who will you know, raise their family, for example, in church, and then as their kids graduate from school, they tend to just fall out, and they fall away, and you look later on in life, and they're nowhere. They're, they're done with church. Why? Well, they thorny soil, thorny soil. And their concern is retirement and leisure and recreation, not serving God and the kingdom. Praise God, I look across this room and I look at a number of empty nesters and you're finishing well. You're finishing well. You know, you're leading by example to our younger generations that it's the end of the race is what matters. It's not how you start the race, it's how you end the race that matters. Amen? Amen. And then there's the fertile soil in verse 8. This is the healthy soil that receives the seed, right? It receives the seed and it produces an abundant crop and it represents the person who has an open heart. And that heart, that seed takes uh, hold, and God does a great work. For what was sown on good soil, verse 23, this is the one who hears the word and understands. Underline that word, understands. That's key. What is he saying? The fertile soil, to know that you're a person who has fertile soil, you hear the word and you obey. That's what it means. You hear and you obey it. He bears fruit, and he yields, in one case, a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. The fruit of the Spirit grows, and it multiplies. There's people who are being brought to Christ through your life. In one way or another, there is spiritual fruit that is obviously there from the beginning, all the way to the end of your life. Uh, Leon Morris writes, the only conversions that count in the kingdom are those confirmed by a life or a lifetime, he meant, of discipleship. That's good soil. So what does this mean for us? I mean, Jesus gives these men this parable first. Why this parable first? And it's important. It almost is a stand, and he, and he gives the meaning to it. I want to suggest some gospel applications that are very important for us this morning to get a hold of. And the first one, I would contend, is kind of a, he's teaching them. So there's an intellectual application that we need to get here, a mental application that we need to understand, and that when we do, it will enlighten us and it will make us wiser as disciples and followers of Christ. No doubt, these, these apostles were asking and wondering, why are we getting all this opposition? The people that you've ever shared the God, why don't they see it? Why are they resisting? Why are they throwing it back in my face? I, I mean, think about these guys. I mean, Jesus, you're raising people from the dead for crying out loud. Why don't these guys believe? Why don't they get on the team? <laughs> why are they doing this? And this parable is Jesus helping them understand why people do not listen. It helps us to understand. Why that child, why that family member, why that coworker that you may pour your life into isn't listening and won't listen. It's because of their heart. 
See, see, don't beat yourself up and think, oh, I'm not doing it right. I'm, I, if I just say the right thing, as Ben pointed out last week, being a fisher of men, it, it doesn't come down to your tactics and your timing. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he turned to the disciples and he threw their tactics and timing out the window, right? And it, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to just be a bunch of ignoramuses. I mean, it, it, go to the evangelism training that we're offering in a few weeks. Get skills. But ultimately, understand you never convince and debate somebody into the kingdom of God. It's the heart of the person. They have to have the right kind of heart. Understand that. And so, with that being the case, you're going to sow seed and you're going to share your faith and you will fail. You will have it slapped back in your face. You will have it rejected. You will have people who will listen and thank you, and the relationship will continue. And, and, and you may not see any fruit in that. And it may be years later that, some, that God uses it. God, it may never happen. Their heart may be shallow from that point to the time they die. And if that's the case, they will never, ever come into the kingdom of God. You've got to understand that. That a person's heart is what determines whether they will come into the kingdom of God. So there's an intellectual application. There's a physical application. This is a call to action. This parable reminds us of our calling to be involved, to be people who are sowing the seed of the gospel everywhere that we can, as much as we possibly can. Our calling from the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a group of people who are passing out seed. We do it in our deeds, in our actions, in our lifestyle, by how we love one another and love others, and we do it in our words. We do it in word and we do it in deed. It's a both and, folks. We, we stroke checks and we help plant churches around the world and we get involved in the lives of our neighbors. It's a both and. It's word and deed. In our own backyard and around the world, we're to be planting seeds, throwing seed out, throw it out, throw it out. Everywhere we can, throw out the seed because we don't know what the soil is like. We don't know where the good soil is. We don't know where the fertile soil is. We don't know if it's the guy sitting next to me in work today or if it's the guy sitting next to me in work next year, if it's the nurse that I interact with at the hospital, if it's the student that I speak to this year or next year. We don't know what God has intended for that person. We don't know the soil of their heart and what it's ultimately going to be. Our calling is to throw out the seed in every possible way that we can. But don't mistake our calling. We are all called to physically throw out seed, get it out there, be involved in sowing the seed. A third application, as we sow this emotionally, remember the beginning of this message? It's discouraging, it's disheartening at times, you wonder what's going on. It's, it, it can be scary. It can be intimidating. Emotionally, understand as we sow, this parable encourages us not to grow discouraged. Don't grow discouraged in the face of opposition or failure because there is power in this seed. Th this parable trusts us 
to, to, or encourages us to trust in the power of the gospel, to trust in God's plan for growing the kingdom. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Aren't you glad that God does not put on us the burden of results? God does not put on us the burden of harvest and the amount of the harvest. He takes care of that within the potential of the seed. Okay? He puts on us the call to plant to sow the seed and to trust him in his plan and in the power of the gospel. So are you planting? Are you discouraged in your planting this morning? Be encouraged. The seed that you throw out, when you point men and women and children to Jesus, that child that God has given you, and you pour your life into them, and you put the word of God into them, and you live out the, the humility of the gospel and all of its authenticity to them, trust that the word of God will not return void in the life of that child. And you never know when God is going to bring that seed to harvest. I will, I will celebrate in heaven with both of my uncles. My grandmother never saw her sons come to know Christ. They both came to know Christ well past the age of retirement. But the life, that, the seeds that their mother planted and that were watered by other Christians came to harvest in God's appointed time. Be encouraged. There is one final application, and we can't miss it. This brings it down to each and every one of us. Spiritually, personally, this parable, it challenges us and it makes us ask, which soil is my heart? Which soil is my heart? Um, we're looking at a parable, so I want to tell you a parable. How's that this morning? You would not know it, but I actually am obsessive about my yard, okay? Um, every home I've ever had, uh, maybe not obsessive, but I, I took a lot of, okay, maybe a little obsessive, a, a lot of pride in how my yard looked, right? And, um, which is why I'm going to sell this house that I'm in because the yard is hopeless. I can't handle it much longer. Um, and so Catherine says, let's just go to a condo where you don't have to worry about grass, okay? I just, you know, I'm done. I'm done. I, I, I'm going to need, you know, lotto to fix that yard. But anyway, I lived in a house up in the Orange Park area, and I had a beautiful yard. I had the most beautiful St. Augustine grass you've ever seen in your life. Stepping on that grass was like heaven for your feet. That's how good grass was. I had beautiful rose bushes. You didn't know that about me, but I loved to grow roses. I had rose bushes everywhere, and the scent of those, it was a phenomenal yard. I dealt with the stress of my corporate life by my yard. 
okay? And I would go out into my yard. I would love on that yard. I would go out at night and do things to that yard to make that yard grow better, okay? But I had one patch of about 10 by 10 on the side of that house, and that had dollar weed in it. And, 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 you know, in most of my life, I'm pretty laid back, but when something gets in my craw, it, it's there. I, I can't let it go, right? And some of y'all have experienced the pain of that, unfortunately, right? And that dollar weed got in my craw, and I put every possible thing on it. I put so much Scott's pellets. I, I read the instructions that said use, you know, this amount. I went 10 times that amount. I mean, I did everything to kill that dollar weed. I brought out the guys. I paid money, and they sprayed all their stuff. That didn't, nothing would kill this dollar weed. And so finally, one off season, I went all medieval on that patch of grass, right? I, 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 first of all, I put tarp over it. I killed the grass. I then cut it out, right? I tilled, I went and rented a tiller from Home Depot. I tilled up the dirt. I got every conceivable poison off their shelf that could be bought, and I, and I put that on there. And then I went to my shed where I had poisons from the 80s that are no longer allowed except in backwards third world countries, right? That had crossbones and skulls on them. And I put on EPA hazmat materials and I poured that stuff on that dirt. I was gonna kill those dollar weeds, right? You know, can any of you relate to this? Yeah, okay, some of you are obsessive too. I then went that spring and I went to the best nursery in Duval County and Clay County and I inspected their St. Augustine sod. This is really anal, isn't it? I mean, I got a magnifying glass and I looked at that sod to make sure there was no hint of weed in that sod. And I bought pallets of sod that was hand selected. And I put that down. I, put a, I had a nice irrigation system. That grass took off. It was so beautiful. People were coming over congratulating. Oh, it's just, it's just that false humility and all that. And by August, I had dollar weed all the way down the side of the house. Right? Not only in the original patch, but all the way down the side of the house. University of Florida has a gardening you know, group there in Clay County. And I brought the headmaster gardener to my house. I said, what did I do wrong? And he looked at me and he said, you only tilled the soil. You needed to dig it all out and replace it. <sighs> so I sold the house and moved. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what I did. Right. What's the point? You know, in our community, that's the parable. Now, what's the point of the parable? In our community Bible reading recently in Jeremiah, and I can't help but think that when those Hebrews were hearing this parable, their ears went to the prophet Jeremiah. In, in Jeremiah chapter 4, this is what God says to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts, do not waste your good seed among thorns. People of Judah and Jerusalem, surrender your pride and power. Change your hearts before the Lord, or my anger will burn like unquenchable fire because of all your sins. What's the soil of your heart? 
A good pastor friend of mine, Bill Warwick, up in Virginia, when he would come to this parable, would always ask his people, four people in a pew, which one are you? Four people in a pew, which one are you? If you don't like what you see in your life, if the fruit isn't there, if there's hardness there and you're rejecting God and Christ, if there's just a shallowness and there's just, where's the soil of your heart? What do you do? Jerry, it's, I don't like what I see. What can I do? Don't miss this point of this parable. Our Savior is the master gardener. He's the sower. And you know what he does? He tells us in Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. You'll no longer worship idols and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. If, if you don't like what you see, you can go down the road of, I'm going to take care of this, and I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to root all this, and, and, and you can rely upon your own pride and your own abilities, like what was happening in Jeremiah, and God says, surrender your pride and your own power. Surrender to me, because I'm the master gardener. I'm the sower who's taking care of this whole kingdom. I'm the one who can give you the new fertile soil and take out that stony heart. Lord Jesus, give us that kind of heart. To the one who's here hard this morning, never turning to Christ, give him a new heart. Help him to pray even now to throw themselves at your mercy and to beg and plead that you would give them a heart that would love Jesus. And Father, would you give them that kind of heart? And Lord, for those of us who our fruit yield is not 60 or 100 or 30, it may even be in the single digits. Lord, we need the soil of our heart tilled up. We need it enriched. We need the heart of our church strengthened and enriched. You're the gardener, Lord. Would you, would you do this for us? In your name we pray. Amen.